Today on Prairie Design Lab, we go to the pictures as we dive deeply into the links between architecture and set design in movies and television. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. In this podcast, we explore design from a prairie perspective. My name is Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. Today is an anniversary for us. It's our 40th episode of Prairie Design Lab, one that I call simply Sets. How much do you notice the design of the movies and TV programs you watch? Sometimes, if the design is well done, we don't necessarily notice it. It just works. Other times, the design is so outstanding that it plays a hugely powerful role in the story. More and more architects are moving from designing buildings to designing sets for films. Many are doing it in Winnipeg. There's a huge demand for set designers here. In 2019-2020, the film and TV industry in Manitoba was worth $242 million. That's almost a quarter of a billion. We're joined now by three people who can tell us a great deal about film design. And to start off, I'm thrilled to say that Guy Madden is with us. Guy began making films in Winnipeg in 1985 and has since become a world-famous auteur. He is a director, producer, cinematographer, installation artist, screenwriter, and author. Guy has directed more than a dozen feature films and many shorts. He received the Order of Canada in 2012 and was a visiting lecturer at Harvard in 2015. With us as well is the Winnipeg-based production designer and art director Réjean Labrie, who has an architecture degree from Laval University and a degree in set design from Concordia University. He has been involved in more than 80 film and TV projects, most of them made in Manitoba. His first big project was Guy Madden's Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. He went on to work on many of Madden's most notable films. With us as well is Alexandra Cham, who's a graduate of the Environmental Design Program at the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture. Alexandra is relatively new to film and set design. She's been doing it for three years, but under the guidance of Réjean Labrie. Hello, Guy Madden. Thank you so much for joining us on Prairie Design Lab. Hey, Terry. It's great to be here. Thank you. And Alexandra Chem, thank you for joining us on Prairie Design Lab. Thank you very much. And Réjean Labrie, thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Guy, your style of filmmaking has such a signature quality about it. What role do you play in the design of your films? Less and less as the budgets go up. My first two movies, one was a short, The Dead Father, and the next one was a short that accidentally became a feature, Tales from the Gimli Hospital. I say accidentally, it just was a long short, and I finally just decided to call it a feature. I wore almost all the hats in those movies. I had my friend Donna Soki make some costumes for me for the latter. But other than that, I was the so-called designer. But what that meant in those early days was just trying to get away with almost nothing. And then later on, I made a point of getting people who had a better idea how to design things. I had no background in it. and was only, um, only because I was quick to forgive myself was I happy with any of the design in, in the films. So I could get people like Rajan who knew what they were doing and a few other people that I've worked with. But I, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for people who don't quite know what they're doing either. So any, anyone want to apply for a job? If you have no experience, better. Rajan, you trained in architecture at Laval. Why did you shift into film design? That's a long time ago. I, I did two years of training. Then I went to work in, in Calgary in the early 80s when I, was, I found a job in architecture. And, and suddenly I, I met now with my ex-wife. She, she was at, wanted to go back in Montreal, in Calgary, go back in Montreal to study theater design. And I studied myself at Concordia in theater design and, and film. And then we went back to Banff and did some music theater there. So I came in Winnipeg as a more of a theater designer than architecture. And I always like going from architecture. There's a lot of restraint with the construction code. And 
theater and then you know working in a movie felt felt so much more freedom and you could express yourself without worrying about uh, you know how permanent it was and i had, had the fortune to work with guy madden who's that coach was really It's amazing working with Guy. We trusted me, trusted the people who were all the volunteers, people working with us on a movie like Twilight of the Ice Nymph. And his style was so, uh, you know, it wasn't just about architecture, it was about painting, sculpture, uh, you know, surrealism and expressionism. And he was looking at the past movies. So it was really exciting to keep digging into being more creative. And I was felt really lucky to be working with Guy and starting that way in the movie industry. How did you two first connect? There used to be a program where a low-budget TV half hour would be financed by what's yeah. now Toba Film and Music. And um, the local filmmaker, Shireen Jarrett, was shooting um, her own script, The Woman Upstairs. And I had just come back from the end of a relationship in Toronto with my last hundred bucks. I hopped on a bus to Winnipeg and I, and I had nothing to do. And I was lonely. So I heard about this shoot and I thought, I'll go volunteer on it. And I'd known Shireen for a long, long time. And yes. so I just started working on it. And I, uh, all I really know how to do is, you know, I used to be a house painter. I just started painting uh, for Rajan, I think it was. Were, were you the art director on that, the production designer? I was the designer on this and, uh, and you came yeah. along and with a lot of great people. Yes. There was uh, just a lot of stuff to do and, you know, carrying things and, you know, volunteer schlep work. And we got along very well. Maybe I was by far the oldest person on that <laughs> already, even though it was 28 <laughs> years ago. I do remember riding up and down some freight elevator with you and one day you smashed your hand in yes. jagged bones and a trip to emergency and things like that. But, uh, and then we'd be kind of, I, I don't know, when I got a chance to make my next feature, which was two years later, um, you, you were just there for me. So Yeah, yes. And which one was that guy, the, the two years later one? That was Twilight of the Ice Nymphs. Oh, yeah. Thought in 1996, and it came out the following year. It was a really mm -hmm. overly ambitious, from a design point of view, I had decided that I better not shoot in black and white anymore. And so I didn't quite know what to do, but I just almost randomly decided on a sort of a late 19th century French symbolist look based on the paintings of Gustave Moreau and things. I'm no designer, but I, I know when I see a painting I like. And so I would go over to the local roti joint that had a color copier and copy some of these Moreau paintings for Réjean. And, um, and then inspired by Moreau, he would make some stuff. It was kind of nice by the time it got translated onto our set, considering budget constraints and then just the impossibility of constructing a Gustave Moreau painting in 3D, um, it became something else and it became its own thing and had a kind of an architectural feeling, but it wasn't, um, I don't know, Rajan could talk about it more probably. I think we created an uh, artificial forest, it was very ambitious. And we had lots of volunteers coming on the weekends to help us putting uh, greens and leaves on trees. And, and it was very uh, bright. We went with uh, chartreuse for green and uh, very kind of magenta color. Wanted to be very bold. Sure, I sort of yeah. had this rule that nothing could look like it did in nature. Kind of um, Joris Karl Huismans, however you say that guy, the guy who wrote against nature. The idea was that nothing in the movie would look natural, not even the outdoors. I've scolded myself for years after that, what, you know, trying to bring in trees to some old decommissioned steel uh, mill to make an indoor forest, but they could only be spindly little saplings. And I realized with um, beautiful painted backdrops behind for the artificial skies, and I realized it would have been far easier just to get those backdrops and take them outside into a real forest at night and hang them and light them <laughs> outside. And you might even get some insects attracted by the lights or it might, you'd be guaranteed to get tons of great insect life in Manitoba, but maybe then the forest would look too real. It would be a self-canceling miracle. It would just be a medium-sized Manitoba forest and that would be no good. So we ended up with a smaller than life. The rules were it had to be bigger than life or smaller than life. And so our forest was smaller than life. <laughs> Now, speaking of early days in film, Alex, you had an encounter with Guy Madden many years ago. I mean, you're still relatively young now, but it was a long time ago when you met in my Winnipeg. Tell us about that. 
Yes. So technically my first film experience was uh, being a 10 year old extra on uh, Guy Madden's new film, My Winnipeg. You know, it's funny. I I always cherish that memory. I I brag to everyone that I was uh, included in that. (laughs) Um, Don't remember so, so much of the film world at that stage. It would have been completely brand new to me, but it's funny to see how everything comes full circle to where we are now. How did you end up being cast (laughs) in this film? Um, My aunt was uh, very quick to sign up her nieces and nephews and sons into getting involved in things. So I have to thank her for, for getting us on to uh, a couple sets. And what effect yeah. did it have being around Guy Madden and being around Région Labrie at that point in your life? I was pretty astonished with this, the circus, the, the film crew that's around you. It's, it's a pretty spectacular setup. I was pretty young, so I can't say I remember too, too much of the specific details, but it is definitely a memory I've cherished and held on to. And whether consciously or subconsciously, it's, it's brought me back to film. If we're looking for you in my Winnipeg, where do we find you? I'm about, I think it's about an hour into the film. I'm one of the children lifeguards in discussion with the public pools. We would have shot that um, at Sherbert Pool, which was the location of a lot of really recurring, strange and uncomfortable dreams that I had over the years. And so I tried to explore by creating a discomfort in the documentary, the the discomfort that I had in my dreams. In one of the, the recurring dreams, I was always going back to Sherbert Pool, but there was the Sherbert Pool, then there was the pool beneath the pool, and then the pool beneath the pool. And there were just different levels. And the deeper down you went, the better you felt. You felt almost euphorically enervated, as a matter of fact. You almost couldn't move. It felt so good. And they were very mysterious dreams, and I'm, I'm still not too sure what they were. But when I went back to shoot there, there was um, a guy who gave me a tour of the rooms, and it was just freshly covered over with wet, still wet concrete. He showed me two big giant peepholes. They were the size of heating vents that monitors, in his word, used to use to, um, you know, make sure nothing wrong was going on in the boys' and girls' changing rooms. And I think those heating vents freshly cemented over that day were possibly the reason why I had those dreams over and over again. I don't, I have no idea, but um, it was a strange place. It's safe to go there now, I think, if it's even open anymore. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's been renovated actually. Yeah. Rajon, you've worked on what, like 80 film projects over the years. What made you make the shift from architecture to this deep commitment into film and television design? I think the creative aspect and the fact that, uh, you know, I always like to create something and see it happening very fast. And it does in this business. Like, it's not like architecture where you do the plan and maybe six months later, it's start to being built. This is like, you do a drawing the following week, it's being built. I was fortunate to come at a time where the movie industry was coming up in Winnipeg, like was starting to be strong. Very, very fortunate that way. And, uh, you know, when you start, it's almost like a drug, like for me. It's so exciting to be part of projects and working with people that are creative and to put together vision. Every movie is different. You can do a horror movie. You can do a movie that takes place in Antarctica. You can do a movie about a hockey players. And you always try to create this world. And, and sometimes this world is might be Chicago, San Francisco, or lately I've done Montreal. It's a nice challenge, but I think the beauty of this is that you're always looking for new location in Winnipeg. Like Guy mentioned, uh, the Sherbrooke Pool, you're always invited to go in this old building that are closed down and almost filmed there before they get destroyed. Um, I do remember with Guy Madden, we uh, went to, for my Winnipeg, you wanted the footage from the arena being destroyed, the, right. the Winnipeg Arena. And the first time they, <laughs> we went all that morning and you ready to film and it didn't come down all the way and they had to do it again. It's a sense of adventure and excitement to be able to put all these projects together by uh, finding these great locations where Winnipeg plays so many cities. 
At the uh, Venice Biennale of Architecture last year, Guy, your films came up. Their theme was called Imposter Cities, and it was about Canadian cities that appear as if they are other cities, other places, other planets. They talked at length about my Winnipeg, and the thing that was striking in the conversation with the curator involved was that your approach to Winnipeg is not, in my Winnipeg, it's not turning it into some other place. It was diving much more deeply into what Winnipeg meant to you and giving us a better sense of the significance of the place as it is authentically. It was like an autobiographical fantasy. Why did you make my Winnipeg? That's a good question. And that the answer is going to give to the question I was guessing you were asking is, you know, I'd lived in this city for a long time. And as, as a kid, especially born in uh, 1956, the entirety of my childhood was spent in Winnipeg getting a sense of what other cities were like, strictly through movies and the television that poured over our border, not so far away. It seemed that once I started traveling as an adult, I found that those cities weren't so exotic and, and strange. They were just cities with asphalt and traffic lights and all sorts of things that seemed remarkably mundane. Yes, there were all those great qualities that make all the world capitals wondrous, but there were all these little humdrum and ordinary things. And I realized what had suffused those cities in my mind with just wonder was that they had been mythologized by being submerged in film emulsion. That just the process of taking a place and putting it in film emulsion can in fact mythologize a place or elevate it somehow or change its meaning or turn it into something. Maybe there's analogs with architecture in there somewhere uh, if you stretch, but it just seemed like after I'd made a number of movies, and I think I'd made six or seven long form movies by the time I made my Winnipeg, I thought this is my chance to give my city the film emulsion treatment, you know, sort of a Z-barting or something like that, that will enable other people who will never come to Winnipeg to feel about it the way I felt about, say, Cleveland or Chicago, or not even a, a big world capital, but just, yeah, whatever um, was, invoked in my head when the word Cleveland was mentioned as a kid. You know, you got a feel for it from brief glimpses of it in films, from its name, from the jokes comedians on TV made about it, its humbleness. I thought, well, I could at least do that for the city. And naturally, it came through me. So it's like my version of the city. And I, because I was, you know, a baby boomer that was getting on, I was uh, 50 years old when I made the film. I hadn't really expanded my own experience of the city much. And so my Winnipeg was this shrinking, uh, spreading donut hole at, at the city's core. My Winnipeg was shrinking. It was mostly just memories. And it seemed to me like it was um, a, a zombie haunted city full of nothing but snow drifts and, and ghosts. It was only later that um, I started going to livelier parts of Winnipeg out in the suburbs and discovered that there's throngs of happy Winnipegers thriving out there and that their Winnipeg is a completely different Winnipeg than the one I put on the screen. So what was your process of working with Réjean on the design of my Winnipeg? I could start mentioning it and then Réjean, I remember there was, um, I had this idea, I was fascinated to discover that there was a place called Happy Land, a year-round kind of Coney Island, a, an amusement park that was quite big in the, I guess, what is now the Wolseley The Wolseley neighborhood, yeah. And that it all of a sudden fell down. I think I had it trampled all in one terrifying moment by a stampeding herd of bison. The idea was that it could be reclaimed by the city's forgotten citizenry and dragged up to the rooftops where they could live in salvaged poverty, but out of sight of everybody, which kept everybody happy. It was kind of a an unspoken agreement with the city in this, um, this dystopia. I wasn't suggesting it was a good idea for poor people to disappear and go live on the rooftops, but I was suggesting that um, cities are always eager for those people to disappear, to go live somewhere else, especially when the Pan Am games come to town or something. <laughs> it's always a massive relocation and things. I had this problem I had to, uh, which I took to Rajan and I said, I, we have to build a community that people could live in, even though it might be a meager shanty town, on the rooftops of the exchange district. And so Rajan just one morning I showed up to shoot it and Rajan had done it. What did you do, Rajan? Yeah. 
Well, first of all, we found the location and we went to see location and there was, remember there was just a tiny, you have to actually climb on a ladder to get up there, which was a challenge. And so I still can't remember how we brought all this kind of carnival pieces. I think we went to the ballet, for example, our OWB, and we rented some of their Paz Ballet, uh, you know, oh, uh, I think the Big Top. They had these great pieces from the Big Top, these colorful uh, piece of caravans and circus and all of that, just to build some kiosks. So it was an enormous project. And I got my construction, I think Sedek could come and he was very strong. And we just carried everything on, on that roof there near, uh, I think, Albert Street. Uh, so this one was one aspect of the movie. And then it was also, Guy, when you talked about the, the frozen horses in the river. We, That's uh, the indelible image for me from that film, is yes. the horses in the river. And, and so we, we found an artist who actually built these heads and found actual, some of them actually had real horse teeth in their mouth. So it's a... So what's interesting about like designing for working on production, it's not just architecture, it's props, it's set deck and all of that. So we, that was very interesting to, to recreate. Uh, you do the one in the foreground realistic and the one in the background less. So lots of men hours. And I remember guy was writing as we were going and we didn't quite know <laughs> how it would end up. We did um, add an assistant, Katrina, who was doing an incredible amount of research on the Winnipeg, finding, helping Guy to find footage from uh, the war exercise with the German invading Winnipeg. And it was lots of fun, yes. And we had a little, very little studio for the actual like building of sets uh, on Main Street, but lots of the locations were um, on the river in the winter. Yeah, it sort of felt like my beginnings again, because we couldn't really afford to build much. And so you had to take what you had, which was exactly what I was doing with Tales from the Gimli Hospital said, where I, I would find a board that had some nice texture in it. I would nail it to a wall and then yes. light only the board so that the board would suggest all the other boards that supposedly lined the room. But the shadows were by far the most inexpensive, but the most used set decoration or even architecture an architecture of shadows completely, and then suggest a space with sound design, with dripping water or creaking boards or a howling wind outside or something like that. So the architecture was mostly shadows and sound effects. And we had to go back to that. I decided to throw the kitchen sink at my Winnipeg, rear screen projection, miniatures. Mm -hmm. I did end up using miniatures, but just every cheap trick in, in the book. I mean, we also did the famous paddle wheel restaurant, recreating in a studio, which was lots of fun. On the top floor of the bay. The bay, yes. It probably would have been, this is so typical of me, it probably would have been just fine to get permission from the bay to go shoot in the paddle wheel. But instead we rebuilt a version of it, which was a slightly expressionistic and cut rate version of the paddle wheel. You know, there was not like, there were too many customers in the paddle wheel at any point in the last four decades. So we probably could have just gone in one night and, and shot in there. But I think I've always been such a backdoor person, kind of a sneak. And I just thought, nah, they might catch us or they might say no. Or they, you know, so Rajan constructed a, a version of the paddle wheel, which I preferred anyway. I wanted to ask Alex. So you and Guy worked together many years ago when you were a child. And Rajan was there as well. But what kind of work have you two been doing together lately? You've been quite busy, you and Réjean. I've been very fortunate to have worked under Réjean for um, two projects. Um, he's been an amazing teacher and leader, and uh, I, I first started working with him on my first film project as a set designer, draftsperson for The Porter, and as well just recently as an art director for him for Padre. Both have been very amazing projects. What's your collaborative process like, Réjean? It depends on the position that you're in. So as a set designer with the Porter, we're working very closely on specific sets for that show and developing the ideas, the layout, the scenes for the space. You know, you're working very closely to take the, the vision of the, for the characters 
and creating a physical set for it. The Porter is a bit of a big deal in Canada. It's about to debut on CBC television. It's an eight-part series, beautifully shot, fantastically performed. What was that experience like for you, Alex, working on that? It was amazing. It, like I had my first week of, of working alongside Rajon and, and others, um, extremely creative casting crew. And I came home and I knew immediately that film was the type of design work I wanted to do. It's narrative storytelling and designing. It was an amazing experience and something I'm very proud to be a part of. Kind of a challenge was it to get the Porter right? Because it's a period piece, right? It's a period piece uh, set in the uh, 1920s mostly Montreal. There's a lot of attention to detail to get the right texture done and the grunge and uh, something, the aging of, of wallpaper and old set deck pieces. And everyone is such a collaborative team. So you're working with your set designers, your graphics team, your props, your um, set deck, and you're bringing together this alternate world, this atmospheric place that's completely different from anything you've ever seen before. How much of this kind of production were you familiar with before you went into the Porter? You know, you're kind of coming into each project with a new perspective. Each story or script has its own nuances or individualities to it. You kind of have to go in fresh and, and start your research from there. What impact did your training in environmental design at the University of Manitoba, the Faculty of Architecture, have on your pursuit of production design, set design? I'm really grateful to have gone to the University of Manitoba in the environmental design program. It introduced me to a lot of my closest friends and really changed the way that you think about things for myself. It opened an idea into thinking outside of the box being inspired by the things and the people around you. Very interesting program. Rajon, you were involved in uh, Jennifer Lopez and Richard Gere's Shall We Dance, right? It's a while ago, yes. I've been spending a lot of time in Chicago because my son lived there. And when I got to Chicago and began to look, especially in downtown Chicago, up at the L, the elevated mm -hmm. rail lines, I was yes. back in Winnipeg. Because you did yes. such a magnificent job of creating those scenes down in the exchange district with the set creating the track above. But the beauty about uh, that movie is that they wanted a feel of an older Chicago. And Winnipeg played so well for that. They wanted It wasn't a period movie, but they wanted that nostalgia. And they went after the, all the great old building we have downtown. And of course, the designer had done a lot of research about Chicago itself. They actually also went to film a few segments in Chicago when Richard Gere is in, in the elevated train. So that helps a lot, even a couple of days combined with, you know, building part of the elevated train structure here in um, along next to Princess really helped to uh, combine the fact we were in Chicago. Uh, Winnipeg sh showed up very well in this movie. I was talking to the architect Les Stetchison, who designed, among other things, the public safety building downtown. We were down on Princess Street and talking about the architecture there. And I was saying how much it looked like Chicago. He said, Terry, Chicago architects designed the exchange district. That's why it looks like Chicago, yes, because yes, their impact yes. was is quite noticeable because they were the ones who were doing the design for what, well, mm -hmm. what's now like Red River College down in the exchange district. Exactly. It's, it's beautiful. And we, there's a lot of this great building. And of course, with the Porter, that was a big attraction to come in and show, you know, the, some of the old warehouse downtown on, on Albert, like even places like the ledge, uh, the legislature, or uh, I always say that Winnipeg grows slowly. Like there's not too many changes here. You go downtown and you open one of these warehouse doors and it's as is, as it was, uh, you know, 60 years ago. I think Guy can, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. And we did, for example, like Jesse James, movie Jesse James, where we took the whole Princess Street, closed it down. Mont did Kansas City at the turn of the century and it was fairly easy. We just took care of the doors, the first level, put sidewalk, put some dirt. You traveled back into time. That weekend we filmed there was absolutely with, of course, the money, you know, 200, 
extras and horses and characters. And Brad Pitt. Was it in Brad Pitt? Yes. There was the sound was different because of the dirt, a bit of smoke, and you were the costume. You, it was a time machine. You that's close as I came to it. I was watching some of the trailers for the Porter, and the Manitoba Legislature turns up, but. Is it being the Manitoba legislature? We try to, in a big production like this, you try to show you your most your grand building and the ledge is, uh, is beautiful inside and outside. It's interesting because the outside plays as we have this, the headquarter of the, what we call the cross-continental railway. So it plays as the exterior of this, but we also film inside as a fancy building in Ottawa, where there's some union meeting that takes place. So it's a, it's quite a puzzle when the director and his AD put the, to, things together. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Dracula, pages from a virgin's diary, because, Guy, I was lucky enough to get invited to that shoot in that big warehouse-like space and watch you working on it and watch the performances, which were stunning and it had this incredible feel about it what were you aiming for in uh, pages from a virgin's diary well i'd been approached by a local producer vonnie von helmut who is a huge fan of uh, ballet and of the already existing production choreographed by mark godden of dracula the rwb had mounted it a few years earlier i was approached by her uh, with the idea of filming it for cbc and I was really scared to do it. And I turned her down a few times, even though I was broke, because I felt I had never really moved my camera before. And I'd never had big sets before. I'd only had these tiny little corners of shadows and things, with the exception of Twilight of the Ice Nymphs, where Rajan made some really big stuff. But I just didn't know how to film action. Dancers seem to need like a football field to say, I love you. Uh, at least that's what I felt at the time. I didn't know ballet at all. But I worked with a former student of mine, Deco Dawson, and we worked together on planning out the dance. It also had to be uh, cut by about an hour in its length, and I didn't know how to make cuts to dance. But Deco had been um, never a ballet dancer, but a Rasalka dancer, and so he suggested some cuts, which uh, Mark Godden was very gracious to accept. I think I decided early on while I was reading the book that I would try to make it as, as close to the original book as a movie adaptation as, as possible because Dracula had been adapted so many times and I didn't know what it meant because its meaning, whatever that means, had slowly evolved with each movie adaptation. It was kind of like no director of a Dracula movie had ever read the original book. So I thought I would go back to the source and find some things that really grabbed hold of me and there were plenty. And it's and so I thought I would make it into a silent movie because that's what a narrative ballet is really. Ballet dancers when they're cross-fading out of dance and into mime are great silent movie actors. So I thought this is a gothic story. Maybe it could be in black and white. Maybe it could have really big sets. Maybe they could be expressionistic because expressionism was at its kind of zenith as a look and feel and art, and art movement during the silent movie era, around then anyway. It was in the past and approximately the same time. It just struck me that I guess the biggest thing would be um, permission from the dancers to shoot them in close-up because I'd heard that dancers were really angry if you shot them in close-up and removed their bodies from view because they worked so hard on training their bodies and I shot a rehearsal just by getting on stage with a video camera and Mark Godden held me by the nape of the neck uh, because I didn't know the dance that well. And he, he promised me that he would keep me safe and yank me out of the way if a ballerina threatened to kick my head off or something. So he did that and I, I managed to get all sorts of great kinetic close-ups of things and wide shots and a whole variety of shots, moving camera and stationary and pretty well just shooting without knowing what I was doing, just trying to document this rehearsal got me halfway to um, a shooting strategy. And then Deco was a great deal of help. But architecturally, the sets, I wanted them to be Gothic and Expressionist, whatever, if that means anything, the, the two seem to be at odds with each other. But there's one great restriction in uh, ballet. The floor has to be a ballet dance floor. Uh, one of those springy, flat things 
And you don't find uh, floors like that in a cemetery or in a um, in an old broken down castle and things like that. So, well, mind you, you also don't see vampires twirling around in tutus either. So, um, you know, it had to be part of the, the had to be part of the story. There's no room for the literal minded around here. But designing it, you had to kind of grope your way and feel. We didn't know what we were doing, and a lot of times I committed enormous faux pas as as a person just placing the camera in a certain place, um, I didn't realize that ballet has, like a magic act, has a, a side, a front that's meant for the public, but the, be the behind where the magician hides the rabbits is not meant to be photographed, where the dancers aren't at their best. But meanwhile, I was running around with a camera and shooting people from behind and Mark was always huddling with the dancers and getting them to rotate. So I was sort of chasing dancers around in circles <laughs> they were, while they were hiding their behinds and things. And I guess that kind of comical, not knowing what we were doing entirely spread out into every department, but we got it made and it's okay. What was that space guy where it was shot? I remember going there and being so smitten by the whole experience of witnessing this thing unfolding before me. I don't know. I just love that neighborhood around Polo Park and where the old arena was and um you know the west end great stuff well the arena is a special connection for you considering your father's work in hockey that must have been a, a natural connection i'm sure architects might never study the old winnipeg arena it was a pretty homely building especially after it had been mongrelized a few times with with additions that didn't honor the original architecture at all. That place meant a lot to me and it was kind of breaking my heart that it was being torn down. And so I went in with my friend, Len Peterson, a, a cinematographer, and while it was being torn down, we didn't quite sneak in. We were told we could shoot around the south end of it where the wrecking ball was nowhere near yet. But once we got in with our hard hats and our video cameras, we just got closer and closer and closer to where the wrecking ball was. And then finally I realized I had a chance that the, that the restroom that I used to use, the men's room that I used to use when I attended Jets games was going to be demolished within an hour. And I had a chance to go and use the famed urinal trough one last time. There was a lot of pressure at that, that last visit to the men's room because it was terrifying. And Len put the camera down on a tripod and we did a lock off and I kind of made myself fade out like a ghost while relieving myself. You know, I got out of there with my life and a lot of adrenaline coursing through my body, but it was my way of sort of dealing with the loss of the building. As homely as it was, you don't care how beautiful your loved ones are. When they're gone, you miss them. And, and I really missed that building, but I was okay after sort of marking my territory in it and recording it on film was really what made me okay with it. It had to go because how else would there be a parking lot there now? You know, it had to go. For Dracula, did you actually put Vaseline on the lens of the camera? <laughs> I'd been putting Vaseline on the lens for a long time. I think maybe I saw Max Reinhardt's 1930s adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream and there's a lot of Vaseline and Spangles and and beautiful simplifying things, things that are even better than shadows in that movie because they make everything seem kind of cobwebbed and bedazzled yeah. and enchanted. And I realized that uh, what was the first time I used Vaseline? It was in, I, I actually shot a location. I wanted a little river where the minister was on one side and the couple he was marrying were on the other because of an epidemic. Uh, he didn't dare cross the river. And I found this great location on the perimeter. The trouble was there were power lines dangling down in between, and this was supposed to be 1874. But I had some Vaseline, and I discovered that if you rubbed it on the where the power lines were on the lens, it just erased them. It just refracted light enough that these thick black power lines just disappeared. I don't even think I bothered cleaning the lens after that for about a decade. I, there was, I was just moving Vaseline around all the time. I did learn that it's thrifty as um, darkness to suggest a world. You know, you can, um, once again, with shadows and Vaseline and sound effects, you can, you can create atmospheres and ambiences, you know, a lot of sound beds that are passing as silences, but are really thick, thick silences. You can kind of create a, a, a world. 
once again, um, I couldn't afford real architecture, but I was using acoustic architectures as well. So Rajan, what did you learn about film and about design and about architecture from working with Guy? It sounds as if he was experimenting and pushing the limits and trying new approaches to visuals, mm -hmm. but also to a kind of built space in which to shoot. Well, I think you learn a lot about design for, for the frame. You know, you can build a full room and make it dress it all. But at the end, you know, you may end up just shooting half of it. And the composition of the frame with guys is always very important. What you have in the foreground and how you furnished it. Of course, like you said, the positive space and the negative space, the shadows that sometimes you... As an architect, you read too much about how it's built or is it solid enough? But, you know, you can, with Guy, we took cardboard and made fantastic sets. It's more of a, if it is lit a certain way where it's more like shadows and all this, you can achieve very interesting frames by just creating shapes and uh, relying on, on how it's being filmed. So really thinking more about how the director sees it and not spend too much money about worrying about the people who's going to walk in the set and not seeing a, a something fully dressed. Uh, I remember like, you know, Sa I was art director of the saddest music in the world and we created all these little kind of shop distorted. Also, I learned with Guy, the first thing he tells you is that throw away your square. <laughs> the guy never like. <laughs> oh yeah, right <laughs> angles. Angle. Right yeah. angles, yes the character, think about what's about, what you want to express with the image. Then uh, again, architects, then too much about how it's built and all of this. And and it's why I, having worked with uh, Alex, she's, I think she has that approach about being interested, very interested in, in characters. And uh, she started as a set designer. I can see her going further because she has a real interest in understanding a script and the characters. And I'm so gladdened to hear that because, you know, Ideally, every aspect of it sort of in sync with its with each other and pointed in the right direction. It's a different type of world. You're designing for a narrative and not necessarily for a final finished building like Rajan is describing. And um, there's so much history you can place in your spaces just based on the atmosphere you want to take from your characters. And um, you know, you're also designing even further to that for the functionality of the camera and for the set. So something that was new to me, you don't realize that the back of the walls are unfinished and raw, that half of the set moves and, and comes apart. Everything's very fluid. There's so much of it that's very true and honest to the story, but also can be very fake. And you don't, don't realize that until you're halfway in it and thinking, wow, this is such a, an amazing world. Alex, can I ask you to ask the next question? And I haven't thought of what it is, but what I want you to ask is, so you're here with two exceedingly accomplished film people who've worked together a lot on some very spectacular work. What do you want to ask them now that you have this chance here in the Zoom room? That's a good one. Okay. Um, Can I say something? Yeah. I, I just want to say like, because, you know, I'm, I'm a, working with person like Alex, I mean, the movie industry is always changing, demanding in terms of like, you know, ability to work with computer and express yourself, digital models and all that. So when you get the chance to work with somebody like Alex and who brings this baggage with her and, you know, suddenly you, you can design something, but she's so much quicker at it and she can suddenly like help you express something is very exciting. And I've always been about collaboration. I think working with Guy started with that was always like everybody brought their creativity into the projects. And that was when I worked with Guy from day one. Always been important for me, you know, when I work with a set designer that, you know, if she thinks something is better or something, I just, okay, let's explore it. Let's, let's look at it. Having these younger people coming in with these tools and, you know, a new way to look at things is, is very exciting. I'm very honored to be here with both uh, Rajon Labrie and Guy Madden. They're both very accomplished and inspiring to me. So as I, I think of my career ahead and anyone else who's interested in this industry, I'm very humbled to be here as well. Uh, I need people like you, though, because, you know, when um, film got left behind, I lost a close friend, you know, because uh, film is the most forgiving medium uh, compared to 
high definition video and a lot of the uh, dime store alchemy that Rajan and I were practicing back in the 90s uh, became harder and harder to pull off uh, in the last decade. There's just other, other tricks one has to resort to. Luckily, um, if you call yourself an artist and can keep your budgets low enough, you can just give yourself license to do whatever you want. But if you're trying to make something that's going to be streaming, you need a lot of money and you need to make it look a certain way. All of a sudden, there's a little bit less fun for me because my tired old party tricks aren't welcome anymore. But um, it's been very maturing and I've leaned a lot on my younger partners, Evan and Galen Johnson, who are really good at computer graphics, compositing, sound design, things like that. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm back in business again, but um, it, it's so collaborative anyway, filmmaking and has been for 128 years or whenever it was invented ago. Yeah, I guess the question I was thinking of would be, which you kind of uh, alluded to a little bit was uh, someone who's new to this industry, what advice would you give them? If they were hoping to be directors themselves, I usually tell people to um, just get their hands dirty as quickly as possible. Go volunteer on a low budget shoot that you hear about. Do as many different things as possible. You may surprise yourself and find out you're way better at one aspect than another and that you never thought you would be. I remember when I first started making a film, I, I had um, a camera operator and um, when he didn't show up one day, John Pays, a local filmmaker, just said, do your own camera work. And I said, I don't know how to load a camera or, or aim a camera, but I had to because there, I didn't have a camera operator anymore. And I found out that I actually liked doing it and that it actually eliminated the, the middle person when I was communicating with the actors. I didn't have to tell the camera operator to lower the camera a little bit. I just lowered it and I didn't have to tell the actors to raise their eyes a little bit. I just adjusted my position. It enabled me to make these quick, fast and dirty movies just by doing so much myself. So I would say um, just make stuff yourself and then try to get on as many other shoots as possible in whatever capacity. And then if even if you just get on as an observer on a really big budget thing and you're not allowed to touch anything, because it's a union shoot and you're not in the union yet. That's important too. You just see how it's done. Even if it's to tell yourself, I don't want to do it that way. And when I'm making movies, when I'm a grown up, I'm uh, not going to do it that way. I remember doing that on, I, I got a lowly position on a movie in the late eighties in town here. And I, I remember everyone was so rude to each other and the, and the, the production moved so slowly and everyone was bored and disengaged. And I just remember telling myself that I will keep things moving quickly. I won't keep everyone in the dark about what's going on. I want everyone, no matter where they are in the hierarchy, to know exactly where we are in the workday. And I'll always say please and thank you, stuff like that. Just And, I, and it turns out that was just a particularly ill-tempered shoot and that most sets are polite, well-mannered and organized. But it was a really valuable learning experience just from being exposed to it for, for the longest time, actually, because I never saw another set for a few years. I thought I was the only polite film director, but it turns out most of them are. But, uh, um, but I learned something from just being kind of disappointed in, in the way the set was. So I would just say, just immerse yourself in, in the world. And Rajan, what advice do you have for Alex? I think it has to do a lot with your attitude, like a guy was saying. Some people have some big egos uh, and think they are always right is, I, I don't trust them. I think always making movies is a teamwork and be passionate about it. When you, you work on a movie, myself, you, you get like, you do research and you, you try to make it the best. Question the script too, or don't be, especially at the beginning, don't be shy to be bold about like questioning some of the sets. Sometimes movie comes in Winnipeg and say, oh, you don't, you don't have this location, but we do have this here. Let's make the movie with what's the best here and change the location instead. So especially at the start, if you involve in the design, like question the scripts, how you can make it better. These days also you have to be maybe a bolder in your approach to it uh, and surround yourself with good people. 
like I did with Alex. And then I, I took Alex on the next project. I said, okay, you're a set designer, but I'm going to throw you as a art director where you're going to do everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and she did fabulous. So you can see that she'll, uh, she'll go far. Well, thank you. Thank you. Working, it's been great to work with you and I can't wait to do it again. Thank you so much. Alex, thank you. Thank you again. Bejon, Very thank you. humbled. Thank you for putting this together. That's why I'm seeing Guy and Alex and you. Yeah. And Guy, it's so it's so great to see you again. I have been such an admirer and such, you know, sitting on the, the benches of your your creativity. I remember being at the WAG when you were doing your little my bedroom miniature. <laughs> and I was sitting watching really up close and we and I interviewed you there and it was yeah. uh, pretty special stuff. Yeah, there was a spree of self-indulgence, um, recreating my own bedroom and then reoccupying it with people that I, I never had. I never had anyone over to my bedroom when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so in this recreation, I could have some people over. But thank you, yes, for indulging me during this self-indulgence spree. It's great to, to have the, Terry on these podcasts. God, it's great. Mm -hmm. um, I missed you for these last few years, so... Now I've got you back again. Rajan, my dear friend, see you again, Alex, <laughs> after 16 years. Um, Much uh, has changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've changed. Yes. Well, shall we bid one another adieu? Thank you again for such a fantastic day. Thanks, everyone. Today on Prairie Design Lab, we've taken a deep dive into the links between architecture and film design. Special thanks today to my three guests who were and are instrumental in building Winnipeg into a national center of excellence in filmmaking. They are Guy Madden, Réjean Labrie, and Alexandra Chem. Special thanks today, as always, to Jason Chun, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, if you're in Winnipeg and you want to talk architecture and design with Jay and other architecture and design lovers, be sure to drop into Jay's coffee and architecture gathering place called Make Plus Stuff at 751 Cordon at Coburn. You can catch Prairie Design Lab on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. For past episodes, check out our website at prairiedesignlab.com. You can also hear us every Wednesday morning on the radio on UMFM at 101.5 FM at 11.30 a.m. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. See you next week on Prairie Design.